This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Christine Blashford, www.wokeupthismorning.co.uk. The Price of Love by Arnold Bennett. Chapter 9 The Married Woman. Part 1. Wonderful things happen. If anybody had foretold to Mrs. Tams that in her fifty-eighth year she would accede to the honourable order of the starched white cap, Mrs. Tams could not have credited the prophecy. But there she stood, in the lobby of the house at Bikers, frocked in black, with the strings of a plain but fine white apron stretched round her stoutness, and the cap crowning her grey hair. It was Louis who had insisted on the cap, which Rachel had thought unnecessary and even snobbish, and which Mrs. Tams had nervously deprecated. Not without pleasure, however, had both women yielded to his indeed unanswerable argument, "'You can't possibly have a servant opening the door without a cap. It's unthinkable.' Thus, in her latter years of grandmotherhood, had Mrs. Tams cast off the sackcloth of the charwoman, and become a glorious domestic servant with a room of her own in the house, and no responsibilities beyond the house, and no right to leave the house save once a week, when she visited younger generations, who still took from her, and gave nothing back.' She owed the advancement to Rachel, who, quite unused to engaging servants, and alarmed by harrowing stories of the futility of registry offices and advertisements, had seen in Mrs. Tams the comfortable solution of a fearful problem. Louis would have preferred a younger, slimmer, nattier, fluffier creature than Mrs. Tams, but was ready to be convinced that such as he wanted lived only in his fancy. Moreover, he liked Mrs. Tams, and would occasionally flatter her by a smack on the shoulder. So in the April dusk Mrs. Tams stood in the windy lobby, and was full of vanity and the pride of life. She gazed forth in disdain at the little crowd of inquisitive idlers and infants that remained obstinately on the pavement, hoping against hope that the afternoon's marvellous series of social phenomena was not over. She scorned the slatternly stupid little crowd for its lack of manners, yet she ought to have known, and she did know as well as any one, that though in Bursley itself people will pretend out of politeness that nothing unusual is afoot, when something unusual most obviously is afoot, in the small suburbs of Bursley, such as bikers, no human or divine power can prevent the populace from loosing its starved curiosity openly upon no matter what spectacle that may differ from the ordinary. Alas, Mrs. Tams in the past had often behaved even as the simple members of that crowd, nevertheless all ceremonies being over she shut the front door with haughtiness feeling glad that she was not as others are and further she was swollen and consequential because without counting persons named batchgrew two visitors had come in a motor and because at one supreme moment no less than two motors including a batchgrew motor had been waiting together at the curb in front of her clean steps who could have foreseen this arrant snobbishness in the excellent child of nature mrs tams a far worse example of spiritual iniquity sat lolling on the chesterfield in the parlour ignorance and simplicity and a menial imitativeness might be an excuse for mrs tams but not for rachel the mistress the omniscient the all-powerful the giver of good who could make and unmake with a nod Rachel, sitting gorgeous on the Chesterfield, amid an enormous twilight welter and litter of disarranged chairs and tables, empty teapots, cups, jugs and glasses, dishes of fragmentary remains of cake and chocolate, plates smeared with roseate ham, sticky teaspoons, loaded ashtrays, and a large general crummy mess. Rachel, the downright, the contemner of silly social prejudices and all nonsense, was actually puffed up, because she had a servant in a cap, and because automobiles had deposited elegant girls at her door and whirled them off again, and she would have denied it, and yet was not ashamed. The sole extenuation of Rachel's base worldliness was that during the previous six months she had almost continuously had the sensations of a person crossing Niagara on a tightrope, and that now, on this very day, she had leapt to firm ground and was accordingly exultant. 
After Mrs. Maldon's death she had felt somehow guilty of disloyalty. She passionately regretted having had no opportunity to assure the old lady that her suspicions about Louis were wrong and cruel, and to prove to her in some mysterious way the deep rightness of the betrothal. She blushed only for the moment of her betrothal. She had solemnly bound Louis to keep the betrothal secret until Christmas. She had laid upon both of them a self-denying ordinance as to meeting. The funeral over, she was without a home. She wished to find another situation. Louis would not hear of it. She contemplated a visit to her father and brother in America. In response to a letter, her brother sent her the exact amount of the steerage fare, and, ready to accept it, she was astounded at Louis's fury against her brother, and at the accent with which he had spit out the word steerage. Her brother and father had gone steerage. However, she gave way to Louis, chiefly because she could not bear to leave him even for a couple of months. She was lodging at night at a total normal expense of ten shillings a week. She possessed over fifty pounds, enough to keep her for six months and to purchase a trousseau, and not one penny would she deign to receive from her affianced. The disclosure of Mrs. Maldon's will increased the delicacy of her situation. Mrs. Maldon had left the whole of her property in equal shares to Louis and Julian absolutely. There were others who by blood had an equal claim upon her with these two, but the rest had been mere names to her, and she had characteristically risen above the conventionalism of heredity. Mr. Batchgrew, the executor, was able to announce that in spite of losses, the heirs would get over £3,500 apiece. Hence it followed that Rachel would be marrying for money as well as for position. She trembled when the engagement was at length announced, and when Louis, after consultation with Mr. Batchgrew, pointed out that it would be advantageous not merely to the estate as a whole, but to himself and to her if he took over the house at Bikers, and its contents at a valuation, and made it their married home, she at first declined utterly. The scheme seemed sacrilegious to her. How could she dare to be happy in that house where Mrs. Maldon had died, in that house which was so intimately Mrs. Maldon's? But the manifold excellences of the scheme, appealing strongly to her common sense, overcame her scruples. The dead are dead, the living must live, and the living must not be morbid. It would be absurd to turn into a pious monument every house which death has emptied. Mrs. Maldon, had she known all the circumstances, would have been only too pleased, etc., etc. The affair was settled and grew into public knowledge. Rachel had to emerge upon the world as an engaged girl. Left to herself she would have shunned all formalities, but Louis, bred up in barns, knew what was due to society. Naught was omitted. Louis's persuasiveness could not be withstood. Withal he was so right, and though Rachel in one part of her mind had a contempt for fuss, in another she liked it and was half ashamed of liking it. Further, her common sense, of which she was still proud, told her that the delicacy of her situation demanded fuss, and would be much assuaged thereby. And finally, the whole thing, being miraculous, romantic, and incredible, had the quality of a dream through which she lived in a dazed nonchalance. Could it be true that she had resided with Mrs. Maldon only for a month? Could it be true that her courtship had lasted only two days, or at most three? Never, she thought, had a sensible, quiet girl ridden such a whirlwind before in the entire history of the world. Could Louis be as foolishly fond of her as he seemed? Was she truly to be married? "'I shan't have a single wedding present,' she had said. Then wedding presents began to come. "'Are we married?' she had said, when they were married, and in the conventional clothes in the conventional vehicle. After that she soon did realise that the wondrous and the unutterable had happened to her, too. And she swung over to the other extreme. Instead of doubting the reality of her own experiences, she was convinced that her experiences were more real than those of any other created girl, and hence she felt a slight condescension towards all the rest. "'I am a married woman,' she reflected at intervals, with intense momentary pride, and her fits of confusion in public would end in recurrences of this strange, proud feeling. 
Then she had to face the return to Bursley, and later, the at-home, which Louis propounded as a matter of course, and which she knew to be inevitable. The house was her toy, and Mrs. Tams was her toy, but the glee of playing with toys had been overshadowed for days by the delicious dread of the at-home. "'It will be the first caller that will kill me,' she had said. "'But will anybody really come?' And the first caller had called. And finding herself still alive, she had become radiant, and often, during the afternoon, had forgotten to be clumsy. The success of the at-home was prodigious, startling. Now and then, when the room was full, and people without chairs perched on the end of the Chesterfield, she had whispered to her secret heart in a tiny, tiny voice, "'These are my guests. They all treat me with special deference. I am the hostess. I am Mrs. Fores.' The Batchgrew clan was well represented, no doubt by order from authority. Mrs. Yardley came, in surprising stylishness. Visitors arrived from Knype. Miss Malkin came and atoned for her historic glance in the shop. But the Dazzlers were sundry male friends of Louis, with Kensingtonian accents, strange phrases, and assurance in the handling of teacups and the choosing of cake. One by one and two by two they had departed, and at last Rachel, with the mind, as it were, breathless from rapid flittings to and fro, was seated alone on the sofa. She was richly dressed in a dark blue taffeta dress that gave brilliance to her tawny hair. Perhaps she was over-richly dressed, for, like many girls who, as a rule, are not very interested in clothes, she was too interested in them at times, and inexperienced taste was apt to mislead her into an unfitness. Also, her figure was too stiff and sturdy to favour elegance, but on this occasion the general effect of her was notably picturesque, and her face and hair and the expression of her pose atoned in their charm for the shortcomings and the luxuriance of the frock. She was no more the Rachel that Mrs. Molden had known, and that Louis had first kissed. Her glance had altered, and her gestures. She would ask herself, could it be true that she was a married woman? But her glance and gestures announced it true at every instant. A new languor and a new confidence had transformed the girl. Her body had been modified, and her soul at once chastened and fired. Fresh in her memory was endless matter for meditation, and on the sofa, in a negligent attitude of repose, with shameless eyes gazing far into the caverns of the fire, and an unreadable faint smile on her face, she meditated and she was the most seductive, tantalising, self-contradictory object for study in the whole of Bursley. She had never been so interesting as in this brief period, and she might never be so interesting again. Mrs. Tams entered. With her voice Mrs. Tams said, "'Shall I begin to clear all these things away, ma'am?' But with her self-conscious eyes Mrs. Tams said to the self-conscious eyes of Rachel, "'What a staggering world we live in, don't we?' Part Two Rachel sprang from the Chesterfield, smoothed down her frock, shook her hair, and then ran upstairs to the large front bedroom where Louis, to whom the house was just as much a toy as to Rachel, was about to knock a nail into a wall. Out of breath she stood close to him very happily. The at-home was over. She was now definitely received as a married woman in a town full of married women and girls waiting to be married women. She had passed successfully through a trying and exhausting experience. The nervous tension was slackened, and therefore it might be expected that she would have a sense of reaction, the vague melancholy which is produced when that which has long been seen before is suddenly seen behind. But it was not so in the smallest degree. Every moment of her existence equally was thrilling and happy. One piquant joy was succeeded immediately by another as piquant. To Rachel it was not in essence more exciting to officiate at an at-home than to watch Louis drive a nail into a wall. The man winked at her in the dusk. She winked back, and put her hand intimately on his shoulder. She thought, I am safe with him now in this house. The feeling of solitude with him, of being barricaded against the world, and at the mercy of Louis alone, was exquisite to her. Then Louis raised himself on his toes, and raised his left arm with the nail as high as he could, and stuck the point of the nail against a pencil mark on the wall. Then he raised the right hand with the hammer, but the mark was just too high to be efficiently reached by both hands simultaneously. 
Louis might have stood on a chair. This simple device, however, was too simple for them. Rachel said, "'Shall I stand on a chair and hold the nail for you?' Louis murmured, "'Brainy little thing, never at a loss.' She skipped on to a chair and held the nail. Towering thus above him, she looked down on her husband and thought, "'This man is mine alone, and he is all mine,' and in Rachel's fancy the thought itself seemed to caress Louis from head to foot. "'Supposing I catch you one,' said Louis, as he prepared to strike. "'I don't care,' said Rachel. And the fact was that really she would have liked him to hit her finger instead of the nail, not too hard, but still smartly. She would have taken pleasure in the pain, such was the perversity of the young wife. But Louis hit the nail infallibly every time. He took up a pitcher which had been lying against the wall in a dark corner, and thrust the twisting wire of it over the nail. Rachel, when in the deepening darkness she had peered into the frame, exclaimed, pouting, "'Oh, darling, you aren't going to hang that here, are you? It's so old-fashioned. You said it was old-fashioned yourself. I did want that thing that came this morning to be put somewhere here. Why can't you stick this in the spare room? Unless, of course, you prefer—' She was being deferential to the art expert in him, as well as to the husband. "'Not in the least,' said Louis, acquiescent, and unhooked the picture. "'Taste changes. The rejected of Rachel was a watercolour by the late Athelstan Molden, adored by Mrs. Molden. Already it had been degraded from the parlour to the bedroom, and now it was to be pushed away like a shame into obscurity. It was a view of the celebrated Vale of Langollen, finicking, tight, and hard in manner, but with a certain sentiment and modest skill. The way in which the initials A.M. had been hidden amid the foreground foliage in the left-hand corner disclosed enough of the painter's quiet and proud temperament to show that he took after his mother. Yet a few more years, and the careless observer would miss those initials altogether, and would be contemptuously inquiring, who did this old daub, I wonder? And nobody would know who did the old daub, or that the old daub for thirty years had been an altar for undying affection, and also a distinguished specimen, admired by a whole generation of townsfolk of the art of watercolour and the fate of Athelstan's sketch was symptomatic. Mrs. Molden's house had been considered perfect up to the time of her death. Rachel had at first been even intimidated by it. Louis had sincerely praised it. And indeed its perfection was an axiom of drawing-room conversation. But as soon as Louis and Rachel began to look on the house with the eye of inhabitants, the axiom fell to a dogma, and the dogma was exploded. The dreadful truth came out that Mrs. Molden had shown a strange indifference to certain aspects of convenience, and that, in short, she must have been a peculiar old lady with ideas of her own. Louis proved unanswerably that in the hitherto faultless parlour the furniture was ill-arranged, and suddenly the sideboard and the Chesterfield had changed places, and all concerned had marvelled that Mrs. Molden had for so long kept the Chesterfield where so obviously the sideboard ought to have been, and the sideboard where so obviously the Chesterfield ought to have been. And still graver matters had come to light. The house had an attic floor, which was unused, and the scene of no activity except spring cleaning. A previous owner, infected by the virus of modernity, had put a bath into one of the attics. Now Mrs. Molden, as experiments disclosed, had actually had the water cut off from the bath. Eyebrows were lifted at the revelation of this caprice. The restoration of the supply of water and the installing of a geyser were the only expenditures which thrifty Rachel had sanctioned in the way of rejuvenating the house. Rachel had decided that the house must, at any rate for the present, be made to do. That such a decision should be necessary astonished Rachel, and Mrs. Molden would have been more than astonished to learn that the lady help, by fortitude and determination, was making her perfect house do. As regards the household inventory, Rachel had been obliged to admit exceptions to her rule of endurance. Perhaps her main reason for agreeing to live in the house had been that there would be no linen to buy. But truly Mrs. Molden's notion of what constituted a sufficiency of, for example, towels, was quite too inadequate. 
Louis protested that he could comfortably use all Mrs. Maldon's towels in half a day. More towels had to be obtained. There were other shortages, but some of them were set right by means of veiled indications to prospective givers of gifts. "'You mean that Garden of the Hesperides affair for up here, do you?' said Louis. Rachel gazed around the bedchamber. A memory of what it had been shot painfully through her mind, for the room was profoundly changed in character. Two narrow bedsteads given by Thomas Batchgrew and described by Mrs. Tams in a moment of daring as flighty had taken the place of Mrs. Maldon's bedstead, which was now in the spare room, the spare room bedstead having been allotted to Mrs. Tams, and Rachel's old bedstead sold. Bright crocheted and embroidered wedding presents enlivened the pale tones of the room. The wardrobe, washstand, dressing-table, chairs, carpet, and ottoman remained, but there were razors on the washstand and boot-trees under it, the wardrobe had been emptied and filled on strange principles with strange raiment, and the Maldon family Bible, instead of being on the ottoman, was in the ottoman so as to be out of the dust. "'Perhaps we may as well keep that here after all,' said Rachel, indicating Athelstan's water-colour. Her voice was soft. She remembered that the name of Mrs. Maldon, only a little while since a major notability of Bursley, and the very mirror of virtuous renown, had been mentioned but once, and even then apologetically, during the afternoon. Louis asked sharply, "'Why, if you don't care for it? I don't.' "'Well,' said Rachel, "'as you like, then, dearest.' Louis walked out of the room with the water-colour, and in a moment returned with a photographer of Lord Leighton's The Garden of the Hesperides, in a coquettish gold frame, a gift newly arrived from Louis's connections in the United States. The marmoreal and academic work seemed wonderfully warm and original in that room at Vickers. Rachel really admired it, and admired herself for admiring it. But when Louis had hung it and flicked it into exact perpendicularity, and they had both exclaimed upon its brilliant effect even in the dusk, Rachel saw it also with the eyes of Mrs. Maldon, and wondered what Mrs. Maldon would have thought of it opposite her bed, and knew what Mrs. Maldon would have thought of it. And then, the job being done, and the progress of civilization assured, Louis murmured in a new appealing voice, "'I say, Louise!' Louise was perhaps his most happy invention, and the best proof that Louis was Louis. Upon hearing that her full Christian names were Rachel Louisa, he had instantly said, "'I shall call you Louise.' Rachel was ravished. Louisa is a vulgar name, at least it is vulgar in the five towns, where every second general servant bears it. But Louise was full of romance, distinction, and beauty, and it was the perfect compliment to Louis. Louis and Louise, ideal coincidence. But nobody except me is to call you Louise, he had added, and thus completed her bliss." What? she encouraged him amorously. Suppose we go to Landudno on Saturday for the weekend. His tone was gay, gentle, innocent, persuasive, yet the words stabbed her and her head swam. But why? she asked, controlling her utterance. Oh, well, be rather a lark, wouldn't it? It was when he talked in this strain that the inconvenient voice of sagacity within her would question for one agonizing instant whether she was more secure as the proud, splendid wife of Louis Forrest than she had been as a mere lady help, and the same insistent voice would repeat the warnings which she had had from Mrs. Maldon and from Thomas Batchgrew, and would remind her of what she herself had said to herself when Louis first kissed her, "'This is wrong, but I don't care. He is mine.' Upon hearing of his inheritance from Mrs. Maldon, Louis was for throwing up immediately his situation at Horrocleaves. Rachel had dissuaded him from such irresponsible madness. She had prevented him from running into a hundred expenses during their engagement, and in connection with the house. And he had, in the end, enthusiastically praised her common sense. But that very morning, at the midday meal, he had surprised her by announcing that, on account of the reception, he should not go to the works at all in the afternoon, though he had omitted to warn Horrocleave. Ultimately she had managed by guile to dispatch him to the works for two hours, and now in the evening he was alarming her afresh. 
Why go to Llandudno? What point was there in rushing off to Llandudno and scattering in three days more money than they could save in three weeks? He frightened her ingrained prudence, and her alarm was only increased by his obvious failure to realise the terrible defect in himself, for to her it was terrible. The joyous scheme of an excursion to Llandudno had suddenly crossed his mind, exciting the appetite for pleasure, hence the appetite must be immediately indulged. Rachel had been brought up otherwise, and as a direct result of Louis's irresponsible suggestion she had a vision of the house with county court bailiffs lodged in the kitchen. She had only to say, yes, let's go, and they would be off on the absurd and wicked expedition. I'd really rather not, she said, smiling but serious. All serene, but anyhow, next week's Easter, and we shall have to go somewhere then, you know. She put her hands on his shoulders and looked close at him, knowing that she must use her power and that the heavy dusk would help her. "'Why?' she asked again. "'I'd much sooner stay here at Easter. Truly I would. With you.' The episode ended with an embrace. She had won. "'Very well, very well,' said Louis. "'Easter in the coal-cellar, if you like. I'm on for anything.' "'But don't you see, dearest?' she said, and he imitated her emphasis, full of teasing good humour. "'Yes, I see, dearest.' She breathed relief, and asked, "'Are you going to give me my bicycle lesson?' Part three. Louis had borrowed a bicycle for Rachel to ruin while learning to ride. He said that a friend had lent it to him, a man in Hanbridge whose mother had given up riding on account of stoutness, but who exactly this friend was Rachel knew not, Louis's information being characteristically sketchy and incomplete, and with his air of candour and good humour he had a strange way of warding off questions, so that already Rachel had grown used to a phrase which she would utter only in her mind, "'I don't like to ask him.' It pleased Louis to ride this bicycle out of the backyard, down the sloping entry, and then steer it through another narrow gateway, across the pavement, and let it solemnly bump, first with the front wheel, and then with the back wheel, from the pavement into the road. During this feat he stood on the pedals. He turned the machine up Biker's Lane, and steadily climbed the steep at Rachel's walking pace, and Rachel, hurrying by his side, watched in the obscurity the play of his ankles as he put into practice the principles of pedalling which he had preached. He was a graceful rider, every movement was natural and elegant. Rachel considered him to be the most graceful cyclist that ever was. She was fascinated by the revolutions of his feet. She felt ecstatically happy. The episode of his caprice for the seaside was absolutely forgotten. After all, she asked for nothing more than possession of him, and she had that, though indeed it seemed too marvellous to be true. The bicycle lesson was her hour of magic, and more so on this night than on previous nights. "'I must change my dress,' she had said. "'I can't go in this one.' quick then his impatience could not wait he had helped her he undid hooks and fastened others the rich blue frock lay across the bed and looked lovely on the ivory-coloured counterpane it seemed indeed to be a part of that in her which was louise then she was in a short skirt which she had devised herself and he was pushing her out of the room his hand on her back and she had feigned reluctance resisting his pressure while laughing with gleeful eagerness to be gone no delay had been allowed as they passed through the kitchen, not one instant for parley with Mrs. Tams as to the domestic organisation of the evening, he was still pushing her. Thus she had had to confide her precious house and its innumerable treasures to Mrs. Tams, and in this surrender to Louis's whim there was a fearful joy. When Louis turned at last into Park Road, and stepped from between the wheels, she exclaimed, a little breathless from quick walking level with him up the hill, "'I can't bear to see you ride so well, oh!' She crunched her teeth with a loving cruel gesture. "'I should like to hurt you frightfully!' "'What for?' "'Because I shall never, never be able to ride as well as you do.' He winked. "'Here, take hold.' "'I'm not ready, I'm not ready,' she cried. But he loosed the machine, and she was obliged to seize it as it fell. That was his teasing. Park Road had been the scene of the lesson for three nights. It was level, and it was unfrequented. "'And the doctor's handy in case you break your neck,' Louis had said. 
Dr. Yardley's red lamp shone amicably among yellow lights, and its ray with theirs was lost in the mysterious obscurities of the closed park. Not only was it socially advisable for Rachel to study the perverse nature of the bicycle at night, for not to know how to ride the bicycle was as shameful as not to know how to read and write, but she preferred the night for the romantic feeling of being alone with Louis in the dark and above the glow of the town. She loved the sharp night wind on her cheek and the faint clandestine rustling of the low evergreens within the park palisade, and the invisible and almost tangible soft sky revealed round the horizon by gleams of fire. She had longed to ride the bicycle as some girls longed to follow the hunt or to steer an automobile or a yacht, and now her ambition was being attained amid all circumstances of bliss. And yet she would shrink from beginning the lesson. "'The lamp! You've forgotten to light the lamp!' she said. "'Get on,' said he. "'But suppose a policeman come.' "'Suppose you get on and start. Do you think I don't know you? Policemen are my affair. Besides, all nice policemen are in bed. Don't be afraid. It isn't alive. I've got hold of the thing. Sit well down. No, there are only two pedals. You seem to think there are about nineteen. Right. No, no, no. Don't. Do not cling to those blooming handlebars as if you were in a storm at sea. Be a nice little cat in front of the fire. All your muscles loose. Now. Are you ready?' Yes, she murmured, with teeth set and dilated eyes staring ahead at the hideous dangers of Park Road. He impelled, the pedals went round, the machine slid terribly forward, and in a moment Louis said mischievously, "'I told you you'd have a go alone to-night. There you are.' His footsteps ceased. "'Louis!' she cried sharply, and yet sadly upbraiding his unspeakable treason. Her fingers gripped convulsively the handlebars. She was moving alone. It was inconceivably awful and delightful.' She was on the back of a wild pony in the forest. The miracle of equilibrium was being accomplished. The impossible was done, and at the first attempt. She thought very clearly how wondrous was life, and how perfectly happy fate had made her. And then she was lying in a tangle amid dozens of complex wheels, chains, and bars. "'Hurt!' shouted Louis as he ran up. She laughed and said, "'No,' and sat up stiffly, full of secret dollars. Yet he knew, and she knew, that the accidents of the previous two nights had covered her limbs with blue discolorations, and that the latest fall was more severe than any previous one. Her courage enchanted Louis, and filled him with a sense of security. She was not graceful in these exercises. Her ankles were thick and clumsy. Not merely had she no natural aptitude for physical feats, apparently she was not lissom nor elegant in motion, but what courage, what calm, bright endurance, what stoicism! Most girls would have reproached him for betraying them to destruction, would have pouted, complained, demanded petting and apologies. But not she, she was like a man, and when he helped her to pick herself up he noticed that after all she was both lissom and agile, and exquisitely, disturbingly girlish in her short dusty skirt, and that she did trust him and depend on him. And he realised that he was safe for life with her, she was created for him. Work was resumed. "'Now don't let go of me till I tell you,' she enjoined lightly. "'I won't,' he answered, and it seemed to him that his loyalty to her expanded and filled all his soul. Later, as she approached the other end of Park Road, near Moorthorne Road, a tramcar hurled itself suddenly down Moorthorne Road and overthrew her. It is true that the tramcar was never less than twenty yards away from her, but even at twenty yards it could overthrow. Rachel sat dazed in the road, and her voice was uncertain as she told Louis to examine the bicycle. One of the pedals was bent and prevented the back wheel from making a complete revolution.' "'It's nothing,' said Louis. "'I'll have it right in the morning.' "'Who's that?' Rachel, who had risen, gasping, turned to him excitedly as he was bending over the bicycle. Conscious that somebody had been standing at the corner of the street, he glanced up. A figure was moving quickly down Moorthorne Road in the direction of the station. "'I don't know,' said he. "'It's not Julian, is it?' In a peculiar tone, Louis replied, "'Looks like him, doesn't it?' And then impulsively he yelled, "'Hi!' The figure kept on its way. 
"'Seeing that the inimitable Julian's still in South Africa, it can't very well be him, and anyhow I'm not going to run after him.' "'No, of course it can't,' Rachel assented. Presently the returning procession was reformed. Louis pushed the bicycle on its front wheel, and Rachel tried to help him to support the weight of the suspended part. He had attempted in vain to take the pedal off the crank. "'It's perhaps a good thing you fell just then,' said Louis, "'because old Batch is coming in to-night, and we better not be late.' "'But you never told me.' "'Didn't I?' "'I forgot,' he said blandly. "'Oh, Louis, he's not coming for supper, I hope.' "'My child, if there's a chance of a free meal, old Batch will be on the spot.' The unaccustomed housewife foretold her approaching shame, and proclaimed Louis to be the author of it. She began to quicken her steps. "'You certainly ought to have let me know sooner, dearest,' she said seriously. "'You really are terrible.' Hard knocks had not hurt her, but she was hurt now, and Louis's smile was very constrained. Her grave manner of saying, "'Dearest,' had disquieted him. End of chapter 9